Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined once again by my co-host, Saima. What up, wheelies? And today by a, a, a very uh, a thin, very, very... No, that, that's not the word I'm looking for. What's the word I'm looking for? Very... Uh, Narrow? Um, <laughs> <laughs> very, <laughs> very, em, very emaciated. Uh, uh, we're, uh, we're not small people. <laughs> I don't think anybody on this podcast, gonna... except maybe Saima, is a small person. Um, but uh, yeah, um, uh, we've we've got a very small group today. Just joining us is uh, Siobhan and David. Say hi. Hey. Hey, everybody. Um, everybody else uh, a little busy this weekend. I think it was uh, one of the first warm weekends and everybody just wanted something else to do. So uh, that leaves just us. Is it warm over there? It's been snowing in England. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been been wonderful where, where I live lately. Mm-hmm. First wonderful weather of the year, actually. Um, yeah. Anyway, today we are going to discuss, uh, we're going to get further into the character deep dives. Uh, we're going to start in on some of the side characters. And since y'all were the, the group of people that showed up for the recording today, I let y'all choose which side characters you wanted to discuss, and they immediately... Went for the bad guys. They want to talk about the dark. Bad guys are fine. Oh, yeah. So we'll just get right into it and uh, dive in with our first bad guy. Um, I think we're going to start off with Eamon Valda. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is exactly the response that the uh, the showrunners are going for with that character. Um. Played by Abdul Salas. Uh, he's an English actor. Uh, he's known for a lot of roles on the BBC mostly. Uh, he's been on Doctor Who um, and on EastEnders. Uh, those are the two two shows that I was really aware of that he has been on. I'm sure Simon could probably fill us in with a little more maybe. Um, you're speaking to the person that doesn't have a TV, so. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the English person who doesn't know her, her English actors. All right, I gotcha. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he is playing Lord Captain Eamon Valda. Uh, Eamon is the questioner for the Children of the Light. Um, and a little uh, um, little information for you that you didn't previously know, uh, this, this character has a duck on his butter knife. So by duck, is that your name for the stork that was on, or the crane or whatever it is? The heron, yes, yes. Yeah, the heron, that's the word I was hunting for. He's a master eater <laughs> instead of a master swordsman. There's bird symbolism here. That uh, yeah, uh, when, when I referred to his butter knife, I was talking about his sword, yes. He is he is a, a blade master. So him and uh, Tan might have some history. Might, yeah. They, they, did, uh, they were both in the White Cloak War, so uh, there's no... Uh, no, no knowledge of that from the books that I'm aware of, but that could easily be something that they could work into the story. That would be interesting. I like that idea. Yeah, I would. Fighting against each other, if I remember correctly from our history deep dive. Yes. Uh, Tam was fighting uh, for the army of Tyr at the time. Or no, sorry, the army of Ilion. Um, he was one of the golden bees, and they were fighting against uh, the White Cloaks who were you know, trying to take over Poland at the time. So they both use the same symbolism on their weapons. Yes, uh, that that's like a worldwide symbolism. That that is a symbol that that is carried over from the Age of Legends. Gotcha. Eamon Valda. What 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 do we think of Eamon Valda? What 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 are our initial impressions here? Arrogance. Yeah, I I really like him as a bad guy because he has this 
incontrovertible confidence in how he's on the right side. He is doing the right thing by any means necessary. And he's just got that incredible arrogance of somebody who believes he's doing right. And it's a great juxtaposition to the White Tower and how the Aes Sedai just have that exact same arrogance that no matter what they do to somebody, they're doing it for the good. It's an absolute calm too. There's no internal conflict of uh, conscience there. Yeah, that's that's a really great way to put it. Like you can tell that that it doesn't matter to him if he has to hurt you because if he does, it's because he's doing it for the light. And and yeah, the, the conscience just doesn't play into it at any point. I feel like he has this cold gracefulness in his movements, you know, the way that he eats. There's something... I just can't think of a different word other than graceful, which yeah. sounds odd. And the way he moves and, and the scene where he's, there was a lot in the fandom about his, um, his uh, sleeveless top. Yeah. But apart from the fact that he has very nice arms, he is an awful <laughs> character. He has very nice arms and why not show them off? But again, the way he moved in that scene, there's just this very kind of, steel instead of iron gracefulness that's all i can keep saying gracefulness he's very (laughs) very strange character (laughs) yeah he's very serene in all his movements Mm. yeah now that you mentioned it i i remember like the way he moves his hips was different than everybody else kind of flows instead of cans yeah there's there's like a um kind of movement uh most people kind of move with their shoulders first and some people move with their hips first and i think he's one of those that moves with their hips first mm-hmm. yeah like a, it's a lot of control right yeah yeah um yeah i what i see in in his character which is something i did not see in the book is is this level of like cheerfulness he seems to be in a good mood and cheerful at all times even when he's discussing these these absolutely horrendous things that he's doing <laughs> And, and like, he's almost bubbly, you know, like, like if he wasn't talking about what he was talking about, you'd, you'd think he was a nice guy. It's almost a a callback to Alana's level of hedonism, you know, always with the food. So they've, they've set them up the, they've set him up as a amazing parallel to the white tower, even though they are obviously in such opposition. That's so interesting, Siobhan, because when you said earlier about, when you said earlier about the opposition to the, uh, being set up in opposition to the tower, when I thought again about his grace, Alana popped up in my head. So it's so interesting that you've also said then about about enjoying. He does seem to enjoy life, even when he's burning an Aes Sedai at the stake. And the contrast in the, the juxtaposition between enjoying the food and, you know, as if he's at a dinner table with friends. Yeah. But he's actually talking to a woman who's being burned at the stake. And then he's picking up her severed hands and lifting her ring and, you know, carefully just like, oh, adding it to his collection. Like it's just another normal day in White Cloakland. Maybe that is a normal day in White Cloakland. Yeah, yeah. Description of him from the book, um, it, it's very vague. It's just uh, he was of an average height with a hard, dark face, which... Uh, I mean, I guess Abdul fits that description. So does, you know, half of men. But <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's that's part of the genius of Robert Jordan's writing is, you know, yes, he got very, very descriptive about certain things. But then when he came to the characters, a lot of times he would get a little more vague to let you kind of 
fit who you want in that in that role. Saima's looking a little uh, uh, dubious about that idea. No, I just I just realized that I always think with Jordan, he's I had such a difficult time visualizing the height of all the characters because you know Jordan describes everyone as like you know kind of of a quite you know very tall and then somebody else comes in and they're even taller and then the next person comes yeah. in and they're even taller and I'm just like goodness are they not touching the ceiling like how tall are these people right? <laughs> yeah yeah I, I being a tall person myself yeah the the number of people he describes as as near or at my height is is ridiculous yeah yeah and then you know and then and then the women must be a hip height to all the men that's what that's how i used to imagine it when i really tried to think about you know okay what is he what's being described here but the reason i, I was I, I was i was just like oh is because i don't correct me if i'm wrong book readers but it's rare i think for jordan to describe a man of average height so that's that's interesting that he's not described as you know his his tallness is not described in comparison. He's not, to he's not else. physically imposing like most of the other male mm. characters are. Yeah, yeah, which then really fits in with the way the the angle they've taken with the show, because he's incredibly imposing and takes up like your eyes would go to him in a room just because he demands that attention yeah. almost in his very being. Yeah, he doesn't need the height to demand that attention. Which, now that you bring that up, kind of uh, reminds me of Moraine in the books also. Yeah. You were saying that she was described as being quite petite yeah, in the yeah. books. She's like 5'2", maybe, in the books. Like, very, very short. Yeah, I think out of all the main women, she is the shortest. I think there's a, there's a comment about how, I think it might be from Rand's perspective or Perrin's perspective, probably everyone's, the fact that she's so small and yet she commands any room she's in because of who who she is. Yeah, which is why your your comment about that on Valda earlier is, is what uh brought that to mind, yeah. Mm. Um so Valda, his motivations, what are what are we thinking is behind Valda here? So he's obviously in a position of power and let's face it, that's seductive even in our world and it yeah. certainly is in a place with the one power. Um, and, and, and in a position of power, I'll just point out, uh, like I said, he's a Lord captain, which in the children of the light is pretty much the neck, the step down from the commander in charge of everything who is the Lord captain commander. So if, if, if this was a, a corporation, the Lord captain commander would be the CEO and the Lord command or the Lord captains would be all the VPs underneath him. So, so that's, that's where even Valda is in, in the children of the light. And it's obviously a position that comes with a lot of perks as well, because you see, like we talked about his hedonism with the food, the meals that he eats are, you know, these incredible delicacies and he's eating off a silver platter with, you know, a silver goblet of wine and he's, uh, he's done all right for himself. <laughs> and not only are they delicacies, they're delicacies that have a, a bit of like, shouldn't, should inspire guilt or shame in the person eating them in some way and, and mm. obviously don't. Why, why do we think that is? No conscience problems with this guy. So that would follow to his eating as well. Yeah. So why do we think that he has no, no problems with a conscience? N nothing in there telling him he's doing wrong. What, why would that be? There is a school of um, evangelical thought that 
it's it's basically the idea that if you are doing well in life, it's because God is happy with you. And so if you are in a position of money and power, it's because you were chosen to be in that position. So I wonder how much of that attitude um, Valda has or you know the other children of the light have that they are in this position of luxury and power because they are doing the right thing. Do we think all the white cloaks have the same amount of luxury? I doubt it. I would assume that for that kind of organization, there's this also sense of when you're that fanatical, there's a sense of asceticism that comes also. But the higher up the ranks you go, that's when you get you get the luxuries that, you know, Valda's presented with. But then you see the other white cloaks around the camp and it looks a lot more basic. Well, I would say that Valda's high enough up that he can just, you know, put in the requisition form for his own luxuries and doesn't have to get an approval for it kind of thing, you know? Well, the first time we see it, it's a gift, right? Yeah, because yeah. he's delivering. He's delivering the Aes Sedai. He seems to be somebody who's very adept at this. Um, yeah. We may see other white cloaks that also are as talented as he is, but I have a feeling that he's being set up as somebody who has a particular skill in capturing the Aes Sedai. Yeah, well, I mean, the the eight rings that he have on his, his belt, I think, yeah. uh, you know, that, that speaks to something. I almost wonder his uh, lack of conscience might be genetic or just born that way or built in from a childhood. Like you think he, he might actually just like have psychopathy yeah, yeah. or, or I, sociopathy and, and just there's, there's not some, able to. Some people that can't function on that level and, and can't feel for other people and have empathy and, and it's possible that he's put himself in this position because he's the guy that doesn't have to worry about everybody else. Well, we do know he was a soldier, so it's also possible that he lost his empathy along the way. Myself, I kind of see it as just pure fanaticism. Like, he is so convinced that the children of the light are the, the, the means and the way to righteousness and that they're view is is the proper view of everything that anybody else who doesn't ascribe to that must be a dark friend or or on their way to becoming a dark friend kind of thing you know it, it's like that you're either us or you're not us and if you're not us you're you're not good and then and if if that's the case then i don't have to care about you you know you have some of the shadow in you so i don't have to care about you as much as i do my brothers kind of thing that would make more sense if Jordan was trying to use the white cloaks and, and Valda specifically as an allegory. So. You don't actually get to see Valda interacting very much with the other white cloaks. I mean, there's the one um, small boy who like serves him the meal, a servant or an apprentice or whatever, but you don't see... It would be interesting to see his interactions with the other people, like the people that he would consider his brothers to see how he treats them. I, I'm, lo I'm looking in forward to seeing that myself, honestly. So there yeah. is a, a clear divide between, so I think this is something it's okay to share. And I think Ruark, you may have brought it up in, uh, in the episode uh, deep dives that you did. Mm -hmm. So there are white cloaks and then there are the questioners. Yes. And in the books, they're called, you have the white cloaks and then you have, I think it's the inquisitors. 
The hand of the light. The hand of the light. Yeah. But questioners, the, the word questioner is actually a, a slur. And it, you wouldn't say it to somebody yeah, you, who was. You would not say it to their face. Yeah. Yeah. But in the show, they've, they've taken it on as a, just a distinction. So you have, you have the, cho- you have the children of the light and then within them, you have these more. The questions. I don't know. Yeah. The, the cops. I don't know. Um, and so I thought that was really interesting that they've, they've, they've made that distinction, but just coming back to the, his motivations. I think it's really interesting to look at it from both perspectives because the the young boy, I was seeing him as like a novice in, in the tower. So you start off and, you know, you serve the white cloaks above you. But when you, when you've been part of that organization from such a young age, you get indoctrinated to then become numb, right? So this, this, you know, I, I thought that young boy was, um, Again, you know, there was a beauty and a grace in him uh, as he was coming, but he was not based by the fact that there was this, you know, woman burning on the stake. He was just doing his duty very clearly. He was focused. And if you've been exposed to that from a young age, then you do. And, you know, there is going to have an impact on your on on your mind and the way you approach people. So there could be that aspect to Valder. But then there's also coming back to his interactions with, with the other white cloaks in the scene in the forest when they encounter the party the way he talks to bornhold who's another lord captain there is a we are better than you because we are questioners you're just normal white cloaks but we have a higher purpose and i think that shows the way he views other white cloaks but the way he might view other questioners that would be interesting um i was just sitting here thinking um as much as Robert Jordan has based so many characters and plot lines in this series off of mythology and, and history. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that Valda is, is, uh, basically based off of, uh, uh, Thomas de Torquemada, I think is his name, Torquemada. Um, basically it's the, the name that we still remember from history that's associated with the uh, Spanish Inquisition. He was the one who did all of the really, really horrendous things. Mm. Um, and, and I'm starting to think that, that Valda is most likely a, a rehash of Torquemada in, in a way. I didn't see it. Um, any other thoughts on, on Eamon Valda? Any loose change that we have? Oh yeah. I was going to, uh, circle back to the collection of rings and how that's a major trope of villains in general that the villains are the ones you see collecting trophies and it really shines on their um, neuroticism and they're really internalizing what their their uh, mission is because they have to have something to look at and remind them that they did that every day. Yeah, that, that, that string of... of... I said I ring suddenly is reminding me a lot of uh, Apocalypse Now. For those who haven't seen Apocalypse Now, uh, um, I believe it's Colonel Kurtz has a, a collection of ears that he's cut off of people that he's killed that, that he wears around his neck um, and, and on a string. And mm. so therefore, that, that's kind of why the, the rings are reminding me of that all of a sudden. And I'm pretty sure that might be a shout out. War trophies. Yeah. The other thing um, I wanted to bring up about Valder as well is in this fanaticism, and 
strange hedonism and yet also kind of an asceticism. For me, it really showed up in the scene when um, Perrin and Egwene are being abused. And so the way that Egwene is brought in and scrubbed, dressed in white, prepared before he will deign to have an audience with her. And the whole sequence is so completely non-sexual in nature. Yeah, it, it, it's like they were scrubbing an object, not a human. Mm, yeah. It, it, it's like, you know, their boots were dirty, so they were hosing them off and hitting them with a brush kind of thing. Yeah. And I just found it, I just found that the comparison there that he's, again, he's sitting and he's having the suckling pig and he's having so much enjoyment through his meal, mm. you know, and then she is just this um, distasteful object that he's now going to do his duty by questioning. It's going to be interesting if we, if we, do we, will we ever meet white cloaks that do show interest, sexual interest in, you know, in people? It, it begs the question that he dresses her down and, and presents her as this basic human in order to do the questioning. But when we see the the yellow sister that he burns at the stake, she's in her full Aes Sedai garb. And that makes me wonder, you know, was that because he captured her and he knows that she's Aes Sedai? Or is this, she? he dresses them down and then questions them, but then when it comes time to actually do the execution, puts them back into their their shameful outfit to burn at the stake. Well, he did figure out pretty quickly that that uh, Egwene was not Aes Sedai because she was able to lie to him. But he still had the, the, I mean, the fact that he had doubt that she could channel and yet wasn't restraining, he wasn't scared to be in a room with a woman who could channel, who had been restrained from channeling in a sense. So it's a weird kind of courage and bravery there in that, you know, you could, you could potentially, you know, pop my head off with air or something and yet no i'm gonna i'm gonna and i'm gonna poke at you and i'm gonna torture your friend to get you to confess or show a sign of channeling well it was interesting how terrified of perrin he was after perrin showed his wolf eyes and and started to attack him like very different than questioning the channeler that he's obviously not scared of that's true. He wasn't afraid of Egwene. But he's used to he's used to channelers though. Right? He's used to channelers and he's he knows what they can do. I don't think a lot of people have seen um wolf eyes wandering around. I wonder if he has some kind of um magical object. You um mentioned that there are objects that you can put uh, magical Tarangrial. Yeah. Um if he has something like that that absorbs or or protects him against channeled magic magic in a way that it doesn't do a straight out physical attack. That could be interesting. Yeah, and, uh, that would explain why he feels comfortable and confident in questioning someone who could be channeling at him. Also could explain why Egwene's fire was so small when she used it. And then the final thing about the... Um, his views and white cloaks in general, or maybe he's more specific because again, Bornhold comes off as a little bit more sane. I don't know. Right. So when Moraine, he notices Moraine's uh, wound, he says, you know, 
go find only an Aes Sedai can help you. Maybe you'll find one. That's almost quite like I don't know what the word is. It's like, it's certainly less fanatic than yeah you. yeah. But Bo- but Valda when he's talking to Egwene, you know it's it's you women who channel, right? It's his particular misogynistic focus on women. They don't, he and perhaps other white folks, but let's just focus on him. He doesn't seem to care. There are men who can channel who are actually the danger in the world, right? If they if they go mad and they can cause another breaking. But he doesn't seem to care about that. It's women who channel, women who have power. That's his particular hatred and focus. Well, I think from the white cloak perspective, they see the men who can channel as being puppets of the women who can channel. They, they think that that's... That everything that happens around channeling is is somehow puppet mastered by the White Tower. You know, it, it's kind of a conspiracy theory almost in my mind. Yeah, that's interesting. So they, they wouldn't even believe if a man could channel. Even if a man channeled in front of them, they'd be like, no, there's a woman behind there somewhere doing it, pulling yeah. the strings. Or, or even if they believe the man could channel, they'd believe that the women made it so the man could channel or something. Mm. Yeah. It, that also yeah. Uh, helps the point that Moraine is kind of the anti-Valda juxtaposition because of her speech at the beginning where she calls out the men as being the the tainted mm-hmm. ones the ones that are oh, yeah. that are the evil yeah. and have to be weeded out which now that you mention it is exactly what valda says about the women so it's kind of yeah. exactly the same that's very true and moraine actually actually says the word isn't she when she, when she refers to the men the arrogance yeah and and to touch back on something that you brought up earlier david um when Perrin gets loose and in the fear you see in Valda's eyes. And that's the only time that we see him without that just complete confidence and, mm. and smarminess. And that tells me that he's, he's a bully that, that doesn't know how to deal with somebody who fights back. I enjoyed that moment. Yep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, as, as long as they were both tied up and couldn't do anything, he, he was pure arrogance. And the second Perrin was free, he was terrified. So that makes me think then, you know, that confidence that comes out of being a bully. Could that happen to some sword masters? You know, like when you when you get to that level where you've become so good that you, be, you, you know, become a sword master, then there is this arrogance and, you know, yeah. like just assumption that no one could best you. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Yeah. It, it's kind of the uh, old west, you know, the got to have the, the showdown at high noon to prove who's the the. Mm fastest draw kind of thing you know as soon as you become a blade master you're like well nobody else can beat me i, I own this town you know yeah and, and then the, it's interesting that the western analogy once you become the fastest draw in the west it's like you kind of ride on the reputation of that no one really challenges yeah. you once you become known as yeah. the fastest draw but at some point you also yearn for the person that can beat you too because you don't want to live that life anymore so I wonder if we are going to see that moment with Valda. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, once again, any more uh, thoughts or loose change on Valda before we move on? We got a lot uh, out of Valda. Yeah, we, we, we <laughs> talked about Valda for quite a while there. Um, He's moving a great on, character. Yeah, he, he is a wonderful character. Um, actually, before we move on, I'm going to say a couple more things about Valda. Um uh, he's, he's kind of an amalgamation of characters in the books because at this point in the books, we actually have not met, met Eamon Valda directly. We've heard of him by name, but not, have not met him directly. We've met 
what three or four lower level um white cloaks at this point who who are also you know kind of assholes and 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 thorns in the side but those those white cloaks haven't shown up at all we just went straight to valda and and i think they kind of like rolled all of those into valda to make them and even like like almost a voltron of assholes so oh it's interesting because i was i was like oh there's a couple of white cloaks i'm looking forward to seeing but now when you say that i think actually yeah he those separate ones may have been rolled into into valda we do get bornhold in the books um but yeah, but the, we don't have child buyer. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah we don't have a, a few. Yeah, yeah, buyers. The oh, I, I, and and I'm seeing a lot of buyer coming out in absolutely. In yeah. yeah, that so. real cold fanaticism, almost yeah. unblinking. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Talking right over Siobhan and David's head right now. <laughs> <laughs> yep, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, moving but, on. Oh, oh, oh final, before we yeah. move on, sorry. Just a final thing. I just want to say, you know, huge props to um, to Rafe and the and the rest of the crew because just in one one actor in Eamon Valda in Abdul Salis, they have really increased the danger and the stakes of the White Cloaks. Like in the books, they and the reasons to things. hate them. Yeah, the reasons to yeah. hate them. You know, in the books, you know, they do you know questionable and horrific things, and yet. It was nowhere near the level of what we got in the first yeah. season with Wilder coming on screen. So absolutely amazing. They've really set them up as, as the, the non-dark big bad. This episode is brought to you by 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out 4Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. Um, and now with that final word about Valda. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we'll move on to our our next uh, person, kind of on the the evil side here. We've got Dana, um, who was played by Izuka Hoyle. Um, she's a Scottish actor, singer, and dancer, uh, and she did a, a lot of musical theater. Um, and uh, oh, and she also played uh, noblewoman Mary Seaton in the 2018 film Mary Queen of Scots. So. That's where we know her from. Um, and uh, Dana is, she's the innkeeper at the Four Kings in, in Brain Spring, where Rand and Matt pause on their way to Tarvalon. Um, what do we think about Dana from, from, just from our first impressions of her? She's very tired like in body, soul, and wants to be done. I really want to know more about her. I mean, we probably won't get it because, you know, she's dead. and the, the story has moved on. But I would be really interested in knowing a little bit about her backstory. Like what led her to such a fatalistic attitude that just stopping the wheel entirely and being done with all this nonsense yeah. is the better option. So from a book reader's perspective, Dana was bloody fantastic and blindsided us completely. 
Yes. And I just think, well done, Rafe. Well bloody done. And I mean, the first the first time we you know we watched the episode, I think if I'd been if you know if I'd been paying more attention, I would have noticed the four kings outside the inn. So it's the four kings inn, which has significance yeah. in the books. There's a whole bit. There's a whole section in the books that I really really love that they've taken bits of and they've created this new character and she just I th- I just think it was so well done she it's definitely it worked like I understand and if I had to choose now between the book version and Dana I would be like let's go with Dana because she just encapsulates it wonderfully yeah I I agree with that entirely the the book version it's not as interesting and there's honestly. too many there's too many little parts in there yeah yeah there's you know there's too many players and and somehow dana well first of all in the books it's all men right the the players that kind of trying to get random matt and she manages to just incorporate all of them and become far more effectual at what she's trying to do interesting like when she did the turn i was not expecting it that Mm. that like I was not expecting her, I was expecting that situation to go down there. I was not expecting her to be the one mm. setting the situation up. Right. Yeah. And the, and the whole progression, you know, like now you go back and you watch and she, when they enter in her eyes, like that's, that's them. And then you watch her, her hair changing and her top undoing and the whole, and then when the braid arrives, it's like, yeah. ta-da. <laughs> <laughs> See, I didn't notice that the first time. Like when I first noticed the braid, I was like, "Oh, is she from the Two Rivers too?" And mm. and we don't know about this. What's going on here? And then you finally figure out she's trying to imitate Egwene so that she can pull Rand in. But love to see how she gets pulled in by the dark side. I mean, obviously they use her dreams, but what what that sequence is? Because I don't think you just have uh the dark one show up in your dreams the first night and say yep that i'm following you whatever you say dude (laughs) okay um i think i can i mean i have no direct knowledge of this obviously because this is a character made up for the the show um but being a person who grew up in a very 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 small town in rural wyoming i understand her motivations entirely like she's in this tiny little mining town surrounded by tiny little mining town people and all the same people every day, every day is exactly the same. Nothing changes. And, and you know, you, you get bored of the people that you're around and you, you turn to drugs or Satanism or whatever, just to be, have something interesting to do. And, you know, she found dark friendery cause Hey, you know, she's bored anyway, at least it's something to do. I thought that she was very good at summing up why somebody would be a dark friend like yeah you wonder why somebody would side with a force that is literally trying to destroy the world and the answer is because the world sucks (laughs) yes you know because the world is pain and non-existence is better than existence i think dana would be a great um recruiter to the dark side because my when i my friends watched it um, (laughs) my friend said well, yeah, I'd join her. She makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> She's got a point. The, the interesting thing I loved about Dana's complete nihilism speech was how much it counterpointed Isla's speech. 
Yeah. You know, Isla was like, the reason I do these things is so that in the next turning of the wheel, things will be better. And, and the people that I love will have a better world to live in. And Dana's is everything sucks and it's never getting better. So let's just kill it before we have to deal with stuff. That's even worse. That's the brilliance of the writing in this show. Like they bring us this small character that, and other small characters that just define the general thoughts of the world as a whole. Everybody in the world is kind of either feeling this way or this way because you have these characters that have explained it. One might say there is a balance to it all. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Almost like that might be a central theme of the entire show. Yin and yang or so. But that's such a great connection to Isla. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and there's a, there's a, a thing, you know, happens in a lot of shows where people kind of pair off characters right from mm -hmm. each side and i think that's a that's a beautiful pairing right there yeah yeah um any other thoughts on dana um where did she learn to use that sword i'm not sure she did she was trying to wield it with yeah. one hand yeah i i don't think she <laughs> knew how to use the sword i think that just you know the fact that somebody is swinging a sword is dangerous whether or not they know how to use it. So, you know, it's scary. You just have to be holding a sword to be scary. You don't have to know how to use it. She points it well. Yeah. <laughs> and, and with confidence. With intent. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> but I found the scene where she's running after them bloody scary. Yeah. Like, if you what the way she, she reminded me of uh, Terminator 2, right? When she's running. <laughs> it's just, it's like, I, I was actually just yeah. about to say that scene. Right? <laughs> Oh, the, the lighting was so good in that too. Yeah. They had some really well lit areas and then really dark areas and you kind of flash back and forth between the two. Yeah. But, uh, and what a horrific way to go. That was another jump moment. I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, I wasn't expecting that end to the story, but then as soon as it happened, it was like, yeah, that, that, yeah. that, that makes sense. Mm. That's, how you, that's how you introduce Tom. <laughs> <laughs> so any other uh thoughts on dana before we move on i keep thinking about her, her attitude in the context of the mental health discussion we had last okay. week where mm -hmm. you have someone who is in so much pain that they just want it to stop and they're quite willing to do whatever it takes to make it stop even if it mm -hmm. means you know, taking the world away from everyone else as well. That's a really, that's a really interesting, yeah, it's a very severe place to be in where you not only want to end it for yourself and those you know, but for the entire world, yeah. Well, I think the thought there is you are in so much pain, there's no, no possible way that other people aren't also feeling that pain. So you are trying to do... You were trying to do them a favor by taking away that pain as well. Not realizing that not, not everybody feels that horribly all the time. Especially if uh, you're in, like you were saying earlier, in a very small community where all you're seeing is people in pain. Yeah. There doesn't seem to be a lot of happy people in Green Springs. No, no. Um, I mean, have you ever been to a mining town? I mean, So that's, that's our, our second big bad and uh, the second person who is operating from a place where they feel like they're doing the right thing. Yeah. Interest, interesting how our motivations all, all seem to be anything other than mwahaha. <laughs> it's 
It's almost like they're complex, nuanced, layered people <laughs> trying to navigate the world. Indeed. And speaking of complex, nuanced, layered people navigating the world, our next uh, character is Podden Fane, played by Johan Myers. I would try um, whistling here, but it wouldn't come across very well. um yeah uh johan he's an english actor um and he's knowing known for being that creepy guy on that one show um pat and fane himself uh he is originally from lugard which is another country in in this world um he's a traveling peddler and uh you know just travels all over the place peddling his goods picking up new goods whatever and he generally visits the two rivers about twice a year um that's he, he has been for as long as, as most of our main characters can remember. Um, and that's kind of the background on Pat and Fane. What do we, what do we think of Pat and Fane right at the beginning? He comes across as someone who's actually enjoying himself. <laughs> He's bad because so. it's fun. <laughs> but again, he thinks it's the right thing to do, right? Because he feels like he has to balance out and there's too much good in the world. So he has to play the bad side. Is, is it there's too much good or there's too much serious in the world? Why so serious? I mean, <laughs> he, he, I get, he, really, he really is one of those people who just wants to see the world burn, I think. I get a lot of low-key low energy from him. You I know, he just that. likes to stir up shit. Which, which you know, is, is also kind of where I'm coming from with the Joker. I mean, I, you could say the Joker is very much low-key energy, like almost pure distilled low-key energy. <laughs> And, and and I actually, before this conversation right now, I had never actually thought of Pat and Fane as either of those, but in, in this show, he definitely is. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it fits so well. Right. But even with Loki, there's, you know, there's, there's real sense of seriousness and again, seeing the world in a particular way that makes sense. Yeah. It's not, not, it's not just purely for a laugh. There are serious undertones too why why they do what they do and Saima, i i i want to ask you a question here um do you prefer the way they are showing him in the show or the way he was in the book i absolutely prefer the way he is in the show i do as well yeah i have to um, say um my last reread was my first listen and mm. the pad and fane scenes listening to the audiobook late at night I sometimes had to stop. Yeah. But I don't think they're going to, I think that will be in the show, but he just seems so much more in control and powerful. Yeah. I didn't get that in the books until later. Yeah. In, in the books, he's, he's somewhat more of a sympathetic character, heavy on the pathetic part of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, he doesn't get that that sense of self until much much later in the books. So I like and that they're bringing that in early. Yeah. Yeah, and again, you know, like Rave's doing this with with every with the whole series that they're not adapting book by book; they're adapting the whole show. Yeah. So they're kind of condensing a lot of character growth and showing it rather than having to kind of you know see it stage by stage. But the fact that for me, I think what I what was really striking to me about Fane was the fact that he's controlling the fates and that sets up his position within, I don't know, the dark hierarchy in a, in a much more interesting way than 
in the books. And I just feel like he's going to, whatever he does that's from the books or whatever he does that may be extra, it's going to be, it's going to be heartbreaking. It's going to be a real gut punch, I think. Yeah. And I'm really glad that he's been cast as something more than just the creepy guy, because especially the scene at the end, you know, you, you see that deeper side to him and yeah. the real menace and control that he has while the fades are just standing there at his command. And yeah. Yeah. He, he's kind of a pure agent of chaos almost. Mm. And I definitely got the sense that he was like a captain or a high level ranking official in the dark army, which is definitely counter to what you were describing from the books. Yeah. And we talked about this um, in the mental health episode, when we talked about the dagger, but what I found really interesting in that conversation was, and again, this is just based on, this is not, we don't know where the show's going to go. So it's, you know, unknown to, to me as well is what is the effect of the dagger going to be on him? Or is there just going to be no effect because he has enough of his own yeah. darkness? Yeah. That whole conversation in that episode about, uh, is, is, is the dagger affecting him or is he affecting the dagger almost mm. like kind of blew my mind a little bit. I was like, wow, yeah. that's, that's, that's actually pretty heavy to think about. <laughs> but if you, if you do think about it and sorry, going over the rest of the panel's heads for a moment, yeah. if you do think about it, that gives so much more meaning to his trajectory. Very much so. Yeah. 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 Well, someone who can control fades presumably can have great influence over other dark things. Presumably, yeah. But, you know, c coming back to that kind of mischievous, enjoying life, I love the shot of him at the end of the first episode where the Trollocs just arrive on the screen and he just kind of, he's kind of lounging against, you know, I think the, the yeah, he's like the lounging there, taking a sip off of his his little flask, and then yeah, like, and things the, kind of start picking up. He's like, "Okay, I guess I'll get out of here now." But the way he does that, I just thought that was brilliant yeah. acting. You know, he's just kind of lounging, and then he's like, "Right, time to get out of here." You know? Oh, hey, Very look casual. at that! Some trollocs. I guess I, I guess <laughs> I'll uh, get out of town. Well, people are starting to fight back. It's time for me to move on. <laughs> Someone's like, mm, "My job is done here." So. We we know that Padden Fane was following them after we saw him in the Two Rivers. We we heard him in Shadow Logoth. We saw him in in Tarvalon. Um, we heard him following them in, in the ways. What what do we think is going on there? What he's got to be reporting back. Is it just reporting back? Is there a personal thing? Is there a is there anything? Any I don't know. I don't know what I'm digging for here. I'm trying to see what, what, what falls out if I prep. I, I so, think that he's more skilled than we give him credit for in the show. Because he we see him kind of as an actor. We see him as a manipulator. We see him as a captain or general. But then we also see him as a spy and the person that can, you know, become invisible and sulk through a city unseen or seen whatever he wants to be so i think that he might be the person that the dark one likes to send out to do this sort of task where he's kind of following people and 
gaining uh, information, almost like the Dark One's Blue Aja, if you will. Oh, that's interesting. interesting. <laughs> I, yeah, I like I like that uh, that comparison. That's interesting. It, it, I do wonder if the whole thing with the dagger, because he he, um, he seemed to be instrumental in getting the dagger to Matt. I, I'm wondering if that was a way of kind of like poking at the person that he saw as the weakest link in the group to see if mm -hmm. Matt's the dragon. Maybe I can get something started here. We can get him on if, the path. If we give we him a tainted him dagger, it'll be real easy to get him on the dark side. Yeah. So maybe there's some testing going on while they're on the path as well. Or maybe you didn't know it was Matt and just whoever was drawn to the dagger would be that person with that weak link. Mm. And then he was like, yay, it's my favorite Emmons Field. <laughs> I, I, I still think that he had the dagger before Matt did. That, that was mm. a part of his possession and he was using it. Mm. Interesting. So I have a question. For the panel what do we think happened with Fane and the black wind I, w I was just about to bring that up i'd love to see that scene yeah yeah i, I didn't I hear know. anybody mention this at the time but uh yeah our, our heroes went through the ways and got chased out by the black wind and we know that pod and Fane was close behind them following them because we could hear him so he must have been there when the Black Wind showed up. And I just assumed that he exited wasn't... the ways with no issue. Yeah, I just assumed that he was far enough away that he didn't get caught in it. Hmm. He was following them, but the ways seem, you know, just from what little we saw, they don't seem to be a place that has a lot of branches. So if you have a vague idea where somebody's going, it should be fairly easy um, to follow their path without I, necessarily I, having to be right behind them. I would say they probably didn't uh, give you a good impression of the ways in that case, because there are many, many, many branches. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I almost wonder, because we had talked about this with the dagger, where the dagger can't necessarily affect him because he's already at a point where he's so evil or whatever that there isn't really a a next step up and mm -hmm. perhaps the the wind effects in the same way where there really isn't anything the wind can tell him that is going to push him over the edge yeah the wind's like you're crazy and you're gonna kill the whole world and he's like yeah yes. i know <laughs> <laughs> cool isn't it <laughs> or alternatively the wind uh took one sniff and went went screeching the other direction. That's yeah, possible maybe, too. Maybe Powden Fane told the wind things it didn't want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be trapped in here forever. No one's ever going to give you anything. <laughs> oh, so do we have any other, any other thoughts, any other loose change related to Pod and Fane? I'm just looking forward to seeing what else they do with him because he's fun. You know, I am too because uh, I, I'm, I'm, thinking that they're going to give him somewhat more of an expanded role than he had in the books. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm 1000% on board for that. I feel like there wasn't enough pad and fane in the books. There was plenty of pad and fane in the books. I'll tell you that, but I think they're going to turn, turn that vault dial up to 11. Well, and presumably Maybe. at least some of the group is going to go chasing after him because he's got this horn that everybody knows is super important. So 
that's probably right. a, a second season plot line. Um, the second season plot line that's based on the second book called The Great Hunt, maybe? <laughs> sure. Spoilers! <laughs> but Fane's another one I'm just thinking now. He could be combined with some other characters just to make him meatier. I could see yeah. that. But I just yeah, think... and I'm pretty sure they probably have already kind of combined yeah. him with other characters just because of the personality change. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's so much more personable. There's only so many named character salaries for the show to put out. Yeah, yeah. And and only so many characters you can put in the show because oh my god, the number of character the number of named characters in, in the Wheel of Time is insane. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely ridiculous. And also, when uh, Jordan names someone, you know they're going to show up again in some way or form. Yeah, yeah. If if you meet somebody by name, chances are you're probably going to see that person again. So you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of named characters, and most of them you see more than once. Um, but yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's about all we got for Pat and Fane right now. I just had a insane thought of what would happen if Pad and Fane met up with uh, Min and Min told him what his future is. Oh, Someone with that level of confidence and uh, randomness knowing how it's going to end and what that does. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder how he would take it. I think that would take all the fun out of it. Well, yeah, and if his whole life is fun, then what happens? I can imagine some stabby-stabby happening there. He would not be happy. He would not be happy. I was like, why have you just ruined my fun? How dare you, Stab? Yeah, she'd be like, let me tell you your future. (laughs) Interrupting dagger. Interrupting dagger, indeed. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, moving on from Pad and Fane, uh, we're going to go straight to the top of the heap now and go up to the Dark One. Hi, I'm Dr. Pengalod. What seems to be ailing you today? Doc, it's the strangest thing. Every night after I've gone to bed, just as I start to drift off, I start yelling out strange words like Shire, Frodo, and Gollum. Last night I even yelled Mordor. I really don't know what to do. Ah, yes. I've been seeing this a lot lately. What you're experiencing is called Tolkien in your sleep. It's caused by an acute Lord of the Rings deficiency. Tolkien in my sleep? Oh no, that sounds serious. Don't worry, don't worry. It's really common right now. It can be treated with a very simple prescription. Here, take this. It's called Watch Party Lord of the Rings. Watch Party Lord of the Rings? It's a great podcast where they talk about everything related to Lord of the Rings. They go deep into the lore, talk about the film trilogy, old cartoon adaptations, and Amazon's Lord of the Rings series. Listen to it once a week and you'll stop Tolkien in your sleep in no time. Side effects of Watch Party Lord of the Rings may include happiness, giggling, merrymaking, jollification, witty banter, inner peace, enlightenment, and excessive Tolkien while awake. Caution, Watch Party Lord of the Rings may be addictive. Uh, the Dark One is being played by Ferris Ferris, um, who is an English le- actor. Um, I'm sorry, he's a Swedish actor, uh, originally from Lebanon. Uh, he was in Chernobyl, he was in Westworld, he was in Rogue One, and a whole lot of Swedish films. Um, yeah. He's he's been in some stuff that you've seen. Um, I knew that he looked familiar. I just couldn't place him. Um, and uh, yeah, they they also call that character Ishamael in in the show um, for reasons that we don't know. Um, 
and in the books, he was listed as a handsome man in his middle years with dark eyes and cruel-looking lips. He had a mellifluous, a mellif. Somebody say that word for me. Maleficent. Mellifluous. <laughs> Thank you. Mellifluous <laughs> voice. Um, how how close is that to what they showed us? Do we think? That's pretty good. Yeah. 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 I think they had the characterization yeah. down. I liked his voice. It was very a sense of again weariness. Perhaps maybe this is a theme with the dark, you know, the dark side sense of here we are doing this, you know, age after age. I thought he really captured that. I have to, I have to share here. Um, I was slightly disturbed when the dark one came on screen at the end because he looked and dressed exactly like my uncle. And I was just oh, like, wow. This oh, is very no. strange. This is very strange to see my desi uncle on screen. <laughs> He's wearing the kameez that my uncle wears with a blazer on top. It's like, whoa. So it, it kind of took me out of the moment. <laughs> I had to come back. <laughs> and I, that brings up a point I was going to ask about uh, because we had talked about um, casting and villainizing certain casting and with colorism and in this case not colorism but uh racism how do we feel about a middle eastern man or at least the look of a middle eastern man being cast in the primary villainous role uh well thank you david for bringing that up um in terms of racism specifically perceived Islamophobia, I will share that I had friends who discussed this with me. And I've also shared it with um, with people in, in our online community as well. And I don't know exactly how I feel about it. Um, I'm not as... Um... So my friend, I have a lot of friends who are Watt fans that are also activists. And so they deal day to day about on racism and sexism and Islamophobia. And so it did come up that um, Abdul Salis, um, who I believe uh, has some Muslim heritage background, he was the big bad. And then Faris Faris, uh, Lebanese, is hmm. the biggest bad. So it was noted. Um, and I will just say that it's been noted because there are sensitivities, but we're not seeing when nobody's saying anything more than the fact that it's just been noted, you know, because the cast is so incredibly diverse and inclusive. Um, so I'll just say, well, let, let's see how, how the casting continues. But yeah, thank you, David. It, that's good to hear because that's basically how I felt about it. Like the first time he came on screen, I'm like, oh, no, they're doing this. And then it kind of went away as as I was watching the, sh the rest of the episode in the show. Um, I can say, and Simon can back me up on this, that there is a certain uh, um, a, 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 there is a certain uh, um, oh, what's I don't know what the word I'm looking for here is. There is a certain amount 
of of sense in the person playing the dark one being of middle eastern descent simply based on the dark one's true name and that's all i will tell you yeah but saima saima is nodding and agreeing with me there so and and, i don't know how much to say here um (laughs) to say that um a lot of people are very uh, intrigued and perhaps even holding their breath to see how this unfolds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when we first see the Dark One in the show, um, he's he's showing up in their dreams and he's kind of standing there and he's, he, he looks like he's kind of burned and he's got flame for eyes. What are we thinking of him at that point? Well, this is just the monster in your dreams at that point. It's not really uh, kind of faceless in the shadows. Not even really, almost not even there, but just enough to, to scare you. And as we see in the show, it kind of progresses. The more of those dreams you have, the closer it gets to revealing himself. So my my impression of him when you first see him with like the the flaming head, um, there's this old idea that angels don't actually look like people. They look like these, you know, horrendous monsters with, you know, millions of eyes. And then so fallen angels and angels actually look the same. The only difference is, is that, is that, um, Fallen angels just look like themselves and angels that inter- have to interact with humans put on like a meat suit so that they can talk to you and you won't <laughs> run away screaming. <laughs> and that very much like the whole interaction you have with the dark one very much felt like that. It's like, I am not a human being. I am this otherworldly entity, but I'll put on a face because I'll, then I'll put on a meat I can suit communicate so you can you. See who yeah, exactly. Because then I can communicate with you. Um, and, and that kind of, I think, leads into the next question I was going to ask and, and almost answers it, honestly, was I was going to say, uh, what do you think about the fact that, that they have been alternately calling this character the Dark One and Ishamayel? So my impression is that Ishamayel is one of uh, the Dark One's followers from a previous age. Because uh, Dana mentions yes. Ishmael is, you know, gone down in history and this time it's going to be me, you know, who brought the dragon to, to the dark one. So I'm assuming that, that the dark one is just kind of, this is the meat suit that he's wearing. It's this person that used to be his, his servant or his follower. Yeah. Like, the, like the this, this was my number one follower. So I'll wear this mm-hmm. meat suit because I hate this human less than the rest of them or something. <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. He did okay last time round. Yeah. Or or there wasn't a human in in any sense back then because we don't really know. It's kind of fallen to legend and and what people know as Ishamael wasn't actually a magic user and a human. It was the Dark One influencing it. The Dark One was the one that pulled Luz Theron in and brought him to himself. And they're just associating that personality as a human at that time interesting thought um i was just going to say that i i feel like because um he is not a human character 
we don't have not, a lot not even to a kind corporeal of... character really yeah <laughs> yeah we don't really have a lot to hang theories on like with with you know all the other characters we can talk about their backstories their possible motivations you know where they're going from here where the dark one is just this external force you know acting like a, a an avalanche yeah. <laughs> would <laughs> just doing what he does so so it's kind of hard to talk about someone that you you can't really conceive of i mean i would say that you know people have been conceiving of of gods and devils for a long time and most of them are non-corporeal and we can still kind of conceive of them a bit but but i also see where you're coming from yeah it's you know even in that case a a god does not have the same motivations as a human that is an interesting point to bring up though like what levels of influence does the dark one have in the real world because we we see from the show obviously he's able to impart the magic in some form he uses it to um shield moraine from the one power right and create the illusion with rand and he's obviously able to reach into people's dreams and influence their dreams or even project a dream to them as a message. Mm -hmm. So although not necessarily being corporeal, he has a definite physical touch on the universe. Yeah, that's a great point, which then raises a question for me. What did you make of the final episode where he is, I believe, you know, as David's saying, corporeal enough to have shielded Moraine and physically present in the eye of the world. Where do you think, what do you think's happened to him now? Well, I think we've talked enough about that seal that was on the floor that there's a good chance that that's erupted more of him into the world. And that now there's more of a, a corporeal touch, as it were. So I love the 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 how Siobhan put the 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 meat face, right? And I don't know whether uh, I've watched it too much, uh, along with a lot of other fans who have watched it too much. But there's the bit, you know, where he he kind of pokes his eye and his outer burnt face, kind of when he shoves the arrow into his into his own eye. Yeah, yeah. The, the arrow and, and and his outer face kind of goes in, and. There seemed to be a little bit as that as the outer skin was was um, going inward, almost like a tattoo. And I just have a if um, if the panel or anyone listening has any thoughts about that, get in touch. What are you? What was that a tattoo? Or are we I, just all just watching it too much? And eyes are going funny. <laughs> okay, I I I have not seen that myself, so I'm gonna have to. I, I actually just started a rewatch of the entire series yesterday, so I, I will pay attention when it gets to that point. Yeah, slow down and watch. Yeah, I was bit. gonna say I'm gonna. Hug have to go back and watch that scene again i want to get into that that what happened at the end there a little bit more i want to what what do you guys think the is is the story there at the eye of the world what was why was the dark one there what was with the quendiar seal that was broken do you have any thoughts on that whatsoever or is it or is it just complete mystery i am kind of leaning towards the theory that the whole thing was a long game to break the dark one out of his prison. Hmm. 
Um, Moraine says that Dark Friends in the Tower removed a lot of the history uh-huh. that they had in their library. It's entirely possible that there's um, substitutions that were also made. Mm. So, you know, the final battle against the Dark One at the Eye of the World might have been an idea that was seeded rather than a legitimate, than a, a real prophecy. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, so you're saying that this is such a long game that when they burned down the tower library, you know, a thousand or more years ago, that that was part of the long game leading up to this, this situation. Maybe. Okay. (laughs) I mean, we're talking about, you know, a cycle that repeats itself over the course of thousands of years. And and, maybe this isn't his first attempt. And deities, you know, what's a long game to a deity? Yeah. Just a game. Yeah. <laughs> Blinking, uh, it's another age. Yeah. Well, so correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't the history of the world that the male and female channelers banded together to cast the Dark One out? No, that is incorrect. Okay. Um, that would, in in the episode that we saw with Luz Theron and Latraposé talking in the Age of Legends, that's what they were talking about. Um, Luce Theron was saying, we need to take everybody to go seal him back in. I've got the plan. Let's go. And she says, if we take everybody and he counterstrikes, everybody is screwed. Do we know how he got sealed in the first place? Or was that kind of a creation of the world type situation? Chicken, egg, etc. Yeah, I mean, when 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 the creator first created the pattern at the moment of creation, at that same moment he shoved the dark one outside of that. So the dark one is not within the universe of creation, if that makes sense. He is outside but cannot touch, and that's when he was originally pushed outside of the pattern. But again, chicken and egg, if the dark one is being created to be outside of the pattern, surely there's somewhere where he will be part of the pattern. Otherwise, what's the point of having a dark one that's living outside of the pattern? Yeah. Yeah, I think that more lends credence to what Shabon is saying about the eye of the world kind of being a a fallacy or a creation that the the dark ones have come up with and that it really doesn't necessarily mean anything. I mean, obviously, he's able to have more influence there. Otherwise, he'd project himself out into the normal world everywhere. But that may just be because there's blight there. And so there's more evil there than everywhere else. I don't know. Interesting thought. And also, to to back up again, you know, Siobhan's theory, the Moraine and Swan were so adamant that they knew that anybody but the dragon that goes to the eye is going to die, is going to be obliterated. And as we saw, that didn't happen. So potentially all the two rivers lot could have been there and they may not have died. But it was obviously a very dangerous situation. Well, I could see that being part of the long game con that that David was talking about. you know, if if you tell your the hero to show up on his own and not bring anybody else, so that he doesn't have anybody else to tell him, no, this guy's an idiot. This guy's telling you lies. Don't listen to him. You know, I want him here on my own, on on his own, so I can 
have them to myself and tell them what I want to tell them. You know? Yeah, I mean, even going back to Luz Theron, the whole concept of the eye of the world may just be a bit grand and glorious trap. <laughs> this yeah. is the place where you have to seal him in. But no, this is the dead end where we are going to overwhelm you and your people with the rest of our army because you went there like an idiot. So that brings up an interesting point because we do get that kind of, you know, vague flash that Rand has of seeing himself as Luz Theron meeting the Dark One. What do we think happened? Do you have any thoughts about what was what was that showdown? Was it was it the showdown? Was it the last time they met, or was it something else? I get the impression that that was more something the Dark One was projecting onto Rand than memories of his previous life as Luz Theron. Okay. Because I I would think if it were me, I wouldn't go in there alone if I had those hundred male Aes Sedai with me. We're all charging in there together. Mm. And Rand's vision was more of a one-on-one i've been here before at least that's the impression i got so either one yeah it's a different a different turning of the wheel from further back or what i think is really going on is the dark one was able to project that onto rand now that he was closer Hmm. all right um any other thoughts questions concerns ideas behind the motivations of the dark one any loose change we have before we move on awesome costuming mm. I, I love that outfit apparently so does Simon's uncle <laughs> <laughs> i actually was it today or yesterday um had written quite a long response to somebody in the group about costumes and i said that the age of legends costumes were the one were the ones i liked the least Okay, really, because first of all, the dark one reminded me of my uncle. Um, you know, hi, master. Um, he won't be listening to this. Um, and uh, I didn't like Latra Pose's uh outfit, but I really liked Luz Theron's black coat with yeah. the dragon. Yeah, that that seemed to me to be a different style to Latra Pose and the dark, the dark one. It, it seems but, similar, but. I didn't have the scallop edges. Yeah. uh, We're getting into costuming. Hopefully we'll have an episode on that. (laughs) Oh, we will have a, I'm sure at this point we'll have several episodes on that. Mm. That seemed more Asian than it was Middle Eastern. Yeah, it was, it was, it was quite Shalvarkami's style with a higher front, which, yeah, which is why I was like, whoa, what's going on here? (laughs) It was, it was almost like the cuts of an Asian garment without the silkiness. It was like a different Mm. fabric. Interesting. Yeah. Siobhan, you had something you wanted to add. Um, I was wondering if there's any explanation in the books of, you know, in the mythology of, um, you know, why the creator made the wheel in the first place, why the Dark One is so intent on destroying it. Is it jealousy? Is it just because you have a, a creation destruction balance in the universe i mean i think there you're getting into questions of theology that you have to ask in any religion of any gods you know like mm-hmm. that that the, those are the questions that just don't get answered i think and and no there's there's nothing in the book that really 
gives a definitive answer as to why. I'm just wondering because, you know, like if you look at, um, for example, Greek and Roman mythology, there's some gods that are just assholes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? So, um, but, you know, and then in, in some other religions, gods are much less knowable. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's just, you know, at fundamentally at the base of every religion is some unanswerable question that kind of the, the religion eventually is based around. And I think you kind of hit the unanswerable question here, you know, what's before, why, why did the creator create the universe? Why did he shove the dark one outside and what happened before that? You know, who knows? For all we know, that's, that's their way of explaining a big bang in their universe. You know, who knows? Yeah. I have so many thoughts about this. My face is hurting, but it's going to have to be for later series. <laughs> <laughs> you and I are going to have to talk after this episode. I, think. Um, I just want to do a shout out to Faris Faris for his absolutely perfect smirky smirkiness in <laughs> yes. that and in that blink and you'll miss it moment. Um, yeah. I think that when if you miss it, you can spend absolutely ages talking about the ending and then if you catch it you can have a completely different understanding of the ending and i love yeah. the fact that they did that it was just mwah. and yeah i think with that we have most of an episode in the can um we still have mailbag to go through though so uh mailbag mailbag, mailbag. mailbag. <laughs> we did quite well definitely need <laughs> some more voices the for chorus that. now <laughs> more or less um so mailbag uh you were saying that you were talking with our friend alice earlier well alice sent us a, a oh hey alice uh, um and and i should say that alice actually sent this before last week's episode but uh i decided that the mental health episode nobody would want their their letter necessarily associated with the mental health episode so plus so, we were uh, exhausted I held it <laughs> yeah plus that was a long episode and we were all pretty exhausted so uh, Alice says, hello, Ruark, Simon, and panel. Just dropping you a line because no bail bag makes me sad. Aww. Truth is, after each uh, uh, truth is, after each episode, <laughs> I want to write in, but as I was saying to Simon separately, I'm in my final year in university and it all finishes in two months, so time really is just a concept to me right now. Good luck with that. <laughs> um, having said that, still an avid listener and para friend to you all. Love having Simon as a co-host, and yes, I would. I was one of the ones that wrote her to ask her about the issues with Egwene. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we had, a, we had a, a little, a little. Uh, uh, what what my thoughts were? I was thinking uh, about posting it in the main, but I don't think I'm ready for that <laughs> quite yet. <laughs> uh, she says, "But all in good spirits are just trying to understand." I can guarantee she is not in any trouble. Uh, she also says Ruark's poultry comment from the last episode did not go amiss and I appreciated the nod in my wetlander humor um, going right over the heads of our panel right there yep <laughs> I want to watch the next season just so I can get some of the in jokes <laughs> <laughs> it, it honestly has been such a joy going on this journey with you that I've decided against re-watching the show until after I graduate instead I've started re-listening to you whenever I'm able to re-watch but also remember your theories and how much you all enjoyed the ride too 
<laughs> so not only has she listened to us once, she's going back and listening to us again. That that's that's nice that's dedication. Uh, I was going to say insanity, but a dedication. <laughs> um, insanity, number one fan. What's the difference? Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Fanatic is the basis of fan. So yeah, okay. Um, anyway. All of that is to say that even if you don't manage, to, if I don't manage to write in too often, I am there every week. And yes, I did miss you all when you took a well-earned week off. <laughs> Hope you are all keeping well within the realm of possibility and hear you next week. Much love from your para friend, Alice. Oh, thank oh, you, thanks, Alice. Alice. Thank you, Alice. And good luck with the school. Yes, good luck with the school. And it's always wonderful to hear from you. Thanks, thanks for writing in. And then we got another uh, letter uh, from another friend of ours, Saima. This is Jim. Oh, hey, Jim. Um, and, uh, Jem has kind of a long letter. I'm going to try to get through it quickly here. Uh, Jem says, hi, Ruark and gang. I've been listening to your podcast since the start and have finally got it together to email and say how grateful I am for your podcast and the absorbing, hilarious, and often frank and inspiring words you guys are putting out there. Daring to open up in the latest episode about mental health is unbelievably brave. So bravo all. I firmly believe that these things have to be talked about as everybody at some time in their life will experience such issues whether their own or those of a loved one. And the more light is shown on them, the less taboo be they become and the more likely it is that those suffering may be helped and more quickly. And uh, I want to say, Jim, that's exactly the reason why we put that episode together. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Everything that you just said there, you, you, we need to shine a light on these problems and, and talk about them openly in order for more people to be able to understand the problems and, and get help that they need. Um, so, so thank you for writing that in. One of the best things surrounding the Watch show on a fandom level is the frequent, open, and sometimes intense discussion that has been spawned around subjects like mental health, sexuality, and race. It feels like the Watt fandom, on the whole, is more mature than many others I've been part of previously. Yes, there are always the dark friends espousing their outdated 20th century views, but once the dark one and his minions are cleared away, ignored and pushed into subreddits destined for archival oblivion, what remains is an open, accepting, and overwhelmingly kind group of people willing to talk and understand each other. She recommends a video by a, a YouTube creator by the name of Lesby Nerdy, who has made a lot of wonderful YouTube videos about the Wheel of Time, um, where she talks about representation. Um, I would say if you are a book reader, yeah, you, you may already know about Lesby Nerdy. If you don't, go check her stuff out. If you're not a book reader, eh, stay away. That, that's, no, that's I think be very, very nearly all of her, her segments yeah. are spoilers. Yeah. yeah, very much. So. She's fantastic. We love Lesby Nerdy. Shout out to Lesby Nerdy. Yeah. Um, um, and, yeah. and I think we're, we're hoping to have her on the show at some point. Yeah, right? I wasn't, I wasn't sure whether to say yeah. that, but yeah, um, hopefully we will be having some of our wonderful content creators joining us at some point. Yeah. Um, are we allowed to listen to those episodes? <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> on our podcast, if, if on I have to podcast. be spoiler free, everyone <laughs> might has be, to be spoiler free. Be heavy, <laughs> heavy editing for, uh, <laughs> Uh, she goes on to say, I'm lucky enough to have found an amazing Wheel of Time fan group on Facebook, admined by, well, not not, not admined, we're we're actually just uh, moderators there, moderators. but uh, by, by Ruark and Saima, uh, whose, member, whose members often show many of the same laudable qualities that I've been mentioning. These are dark and turbulent times for so many reasons, but there truly is a voice rising ever more, rising from ever more people that gives me s some small hope that human beings may be evolving into the light. Yours under the light, Jim. Oh, thank you, Jim. And that's a fantastic yeah. letter. Yeah, thank you so much, Jim. And and I have to agree with you. The the fandom that I have encountered in 
for the Wheel of Time is one of the best fandoms out there. And actually, precisely for the for the things that Jem brought up, I yeah. do feel that because Jordan, when one of the central themes uh, that everyone can agree on in the, in the books is is mental health and and all, all types of other types of issues that could be or could not be connected to mental health. Because he puts it in there, I think that's why it speaks to so many of us. And then how amazing it is to have a group of people that we can talk about it, complete strangers on the internet, in a Facebook group, you know, on Twitter, here in the podcast. So, yeah. Thank you, Jordan. God bless you. And with that, uh, I think we can call that an episode. Uh, We'll put that one in the can. We want to say thank you, as always, to Michael and Jen, our benefactors, out at the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Thank you. Thank you, Secret Island. Thank you. And uh, I want to I want to take a, a moment here and say thank you to all of you out there, all the fans listening, especially all of you who who uh, send us some nice words occasionally. That's that's it's always nice to hear, and it, it keeps us going. It makes us keep doing this. Really, every every letter gets another episode out of us. Pretty much, I think is is how it goes. So keep it coming. Uh, yeah, Absolutely. keep it coming. Uh, Watch party WOT. That's watch party what at gmail.com. If you want to send in something for the mailbag, uh, if you want to interact with us on Twitter, it's at watch at what watch party. Um, and Saima has, has been kind enough to take over the Twitter for me since, uh, <laughs> she actually understands Twitter and I do not. So oh, now you're so, outing me. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, now you know who you're interacting with when you, when you interact on Twitter. Uh, but yeah. And now final question for our panel. If you're a dark friend, uh, what kind of dark friend are you? I, I would want to be Pad and Fane, but in reality, I'm probably more Dana. (laughs) (laughs) I, I, I'm agreeing with that completely. I would want to be the sneaky spy, but would ultimately be the one stumbling all over their bad plan. Yeah, the happy-go-lucky trickster in my head, the out-of-control depressive maniac in the street, yeah. I want to be a Shamael, because if I'm going to be a dark friend, I want to be the number one dark friend. I think I'd want to be uh, uh, one of the ravens. Because <laughs> then I could just, you know, fly around and spy on stuff and not actually have to do much. I like that idea. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And plus, no downsides. downsides.